By making the world a more beautiful place, Artemis publishes artists and writers from the Appalachian region of the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia and beyond. This is the time when we need to write and make art for the sake of healing our souls and enriching our communities. Welcome to Artemis Speaks. Hi, this is Jerry Rogers. Thank you for joining us today. I'm thrilled to have one of my literary editors here with us today, uh, Donnie Seacrest, along with her husband, Adam Ganus, helped put the uh, latest journal together, and they've done a beautiful job. So we're going to be talking to her today about what she's doing. She's uh, down in Texas at Texas A&M getting her Ph.D. We all work remotely, which is so cool. And uh, as I said, she's a co-editor of Artemis Journal this year. Uh, she's a Ph.D. candidate in literary studies at Texas A&M University and uh, grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, originally from Radford, Virginia, with roots in western North Carolina. Her research interests include intersections of eco-criticism and humor in the Cold War era, women's writing. Her scholarship on Sylvia Plath appears in the journal Studies in the Novel, and her writing on Rachel Carson's Silent Spring can be read in the journal Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment. So we're, we're going to get into uh, what she's been doing with Sylvia Plath, which is, to me seems very relevant today. I read her when she first came out. I was quite young. And now in retrospect and, and you know, a little older and a little wiser, Sylvia Plath seems to be very relevant. And uh, we're going to get right into it with Donnie. Thank you for showing up today. Thank you so much for having me here, Jerry. I'm just happy to have the opportunity to talk to you and to talk and nerd out about Plath a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, I recently just uh, reread Plath, The Bell Jar, and it was actually, I listened to it on Audible, and it was amazing. And, uh, and your focus on that in your PhD program, you started, I believe, when you were doing your master's. So uh, in an article that you wrote, stones, <laughs> turkey necks, and gizzards, grotesque humor and metaphors of masculinity in Sylvia Plath's bell jar. What a title. So <laughs> what, what were you getting at with that? What's that all about? Yeah. So, you know, I've just been so taken with her writing. I, especially in my master's program, got really into her fiction, into the bell jar. And since then, some uncovered short stories have come to light too, um, which is really cool. But, you know, she's such a poet. And so I've just always been drawn in 
by her imagery and um, these poetic images that she creates in the bell jar. So my article is about, it's an analysis of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, where I'm specifically looking at the humor in this novel and how Plath uses that humor alongside visual structures and a progression of metaphors that she uses that open up this new interpretation of the text. And, you know, I hope that it adds to new interpretations of Plath herself as a writer. You know, you and I have discussed how she's often only characterized by the depressing aspects of her life. But um, just really briefly to go a little bit more depth on, on my essay, um, in that, that piece of writing I did, uh, I argue that the basis of this humor that she has, it's but it actually ends up forming a system of rock and pebble imagery um, that also taps into the biological processes and puns um, regarding, you know, digestion and indigestion. Um, and, and it's both funny and body, um, you know, instead of that interpretation of the novel as only being morose and terribly bleak. Um, and how this knowledge system she creates um, actually enables her to move beyond the institutions of masculinity and femininity in ways that we've largely only attributed to male writers. So definitely, you know, a visionary in her own time and, and doing, you know, creating this legacy that made her into such a, a literary icon. And, and, you know, for a short life, she left so much material behind. I mean, we're still talking about it. We're analyzing it, you know, and there's this sort of morose side to, you know, the fact that she committed suicide in several attempts before she actually succeeded and the whole marriage and the children. And there's been so much written about that aspect of it and so much speculation uh, you know, certainly suicides are messy. If they don't leave a note behind or whatever, you know, it causes a lot of grief with many, many people. And so the interpretation of her work is really uh, highly, um, um, what would I say, protected by her family and her husband. Um, but, you know, it's it keeps growing her the material, and she did leave in a notebook on a desk before she actually committed suicide, uh, her aerial poems manuscript and left that behind. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that. But today, critics recognize Plath as an early contributor to the feminist movement. I mean, that was early on before women had the right to choose and so forth. And now to look at her today is, is so relevant. So you want to address that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that you pointed that out because um, in this this article too, I I go to her journals, um, not the parts that you know lots of people go to. I go to some kind of weird places um, with these journals, the unabridged version, edited by um, Karen Kugel, um up at Smith College. But um, in her her journals, you know, she was very ambitious. And, and she, she wanted her work to not be just, um, you know, just poems that were purely image-based. She wanted to make an impact in the literary scene. And um, I quote from her, um, 
her journals, uh, where in 1959, she wrote, um, a misery wrote a Grandchester poem of pure description. I must get philosophy in. Until I do, I shall lag behind ACR. And so she's, you know, talking about one of her uh, literary, who she saw as a literary rival at the time, uh, you know, very famous poet, Adrian Rich um, was ACR in her her. Um, in her journals, and so she she wanted this work to be substan substantial, but I think that line just shows that what she started with were the visuals, were the images. Yes, and and so you you highlight the fact that she referred to male anatomy, yeah. <laughs> as turkey necks, gizzards, and. You talk about the grotesque humor she had, and not a lot of people saw that. You know, I remember when I first read it, well, I don't know, 30 years ago, I thought, God, this is depressing. But now it's so relevant to what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that that um, that quote you brought up, I just <laughs> love it. It's that, you know, the theme, like you were saying, there's so many themes that resonate from this book that, you know, was published in 1963. So many themes in the bell jar are resonating today. And, you know, so much of this coming of age novel has to do with, with the, the protagonist of the bell jar, Esther Greenwood, you know, trying to navigate sex and sexuality. And so this really funny moment, you know, kind of towards the beginning, um, her boyfriend at the time, um, this, you know, total like goofball, Buddy Willard, um, undresses before her with without any real, you know, <laughs> explanation of what he's doing. And he, he just exposes themselves. And Plath says, uh, in Esther Greenwood says in the novel, um, you know, the only thing I could think of was turkey neck and turkey gizzards and I felt very depressed and and so we see this kind of um, you know I, I've talked to you about how my research with Plath and this novel in particular and perhaps some of her earlier poetry um, she really makes use of landscape and the environment and animals. And so here we have this merging of the human with turkey, with animal, and it's it gives you this really weird effect um, that she uses, you know, in this precise way that I just think is, um, you know, brilliant. <laughs> yes. And, and so you see a lot of humor. I mean, you're, you're pulling that out. And uh, how are you approaching it as an environmentalist and how she did her work? How do you do that? How do you put that yeah, together? Yeah, so in her, um, when I, I think of her, when I'm trying to think of Plath's writing um, as, as environmental writing or, you know, this kind of new genre that we, we can look back, you know, with climate change, we see now that everything's connected, right? And I think writers like Plath were, were really picking up on that. I mean, just out of the time she was writing, um, you know, there, 
They were worrying about uh, these chemicals. Rachel Carson's um, Silent Spring kind of broke open um, these ideas that, you know, after nuclear bombs were dropped, um, what radiation does to the body. And these were concerns that Plath had, um, again, like going back to her letters and some of the um, biographical uh, work that's been recovered on her. And um, just I wanted to give a shout out to one of my favorite scholars um, who's done, who's laid the groundwork really for thinking about Plath as an environmentalist is Tracy Brain. Um, she has a chapter in her 2001 book, The Other Plath, um, that talks about some of these things. But we see even in the bell jar um, that Plath uses this environmental imagery. Um, she actually calls uh, the ocean her poetic heritage. Um, she has this letter where she writes to um, her mother, um, Plath does, um, her mother Aurelia, um, where she's talking about the direction in which she wants her new poetry to go in. Um, and so she, she wants to get back to her roots where she grew up in Massachusetts. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Plath's um, first collection of poetry, The Colossus and other poems. And there's a pretty uh, famous poem in there, uh, Mushrooms. And it's famously, it's told from the point of view of a mushroom, of fungus. So already she's, I see her as a writer who's exploring these, these other points of view and these other modes of being in the world that aren't just you know, solely focused on the human and not centering these these human narratives. Um, so, you know, also again, in the bell jar, I, I think we see her um, descriptions of New York City as not the greatest place. And, you know, can you think of, of another city in the United States that's been more touched um, by uh, by human activity and, you know, degradation. Um, I also think, I was thinking about this last night, um, that it's so interesting that when Plath does, um, you know, have her narrator, Esther Greenwood, um, attempt uh, to kill herself in the novel, she she both times, um, or two of the three times, she wants to do it by drowning, you know? And I think that's very symbolic of this return to the earth as well, right? And then even in Esther Greenwood's most, you know, almost um, fatal attempt, it's interesting that she goes in the basement, right? And of, of her, her mother's house in the novel and, you know, kind of tucks herself away, which is kind of like this, you know, burying herself in the earth. So I think there are a lot of resonances and different avenues to explore um, with Plath's environmentalism here. Right, right. And, and she has several attempts of trying to, to do suicide and didn't, it didn't work. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, her life gets clouded. She marries Ted Hughes, a fellow poet. He was poet laureate of England. What was he? He was a good, good poet. They marry and move to Europe and quickly have children. But it was a tumultuous marriage. And uh, I know you know, there's a lot of speculation about what happened during that period and how she eventually did successfully commit suicide by 
sticking her head in an oven, a gas oven. And I think just the way she did it was so dramatic and rough. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't think you can really just say certain things about her. And I think, you know, in the way she lived her life, it was so complicated. And he was a great writer, but he also was having an affair. You know, she had two little children, and all of a sudden he moved out. So it it was understandable with her history of depression. And we're talking about depression now. And, and, and that is such a sad, sad thing that happens with people. And anybody that might be listening to this program, I want to encourage you, if you are facing depression, to seek out help and to talk to other people so, you know, they can help you. And, and uh, I, I should have the phone number for the, the Center for Depression or whatever, but please go there. Um, but I, I veered off a little bit from your studies because you you refer to ecofeminism in her writing. Can you talk about that a little more? Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to, yeah, kind of second everything you said that um, Plath, you know, herself was a very ambitious writer. And, you know, obviously, um, Ted Hughes, already kind of a legend um, on, you know, the other side of the pond uh, in, in England and um, the UK, um, making a name for himself. And then these two just really bright lights, you know, coming together and um, in this really kind of explosive way. Um, and so that, yeah, a lot, a lot of attention gets focused there uh, because it is so interesting and they were both just such ambitious, passionate people. Um, but yeah, so in terms of, again, um, getting back more to where my research on Plath is headed and um, the direction I, I hope to continue to pursue with this, um, in thinking about uh, eco-feminism and um, eco-criticism. Uh, so there's, in scholarship, just to, you know, briefly, um, I, I don't know um, how, how much your listeners are, you know, nerds about environmental theory like I am. So I'll just provide a quick definition of uh, eco-feminism, which is this, uh, you know, theory and, and a movement that I'm, I'm going to start arguing Plath is an early progenitor of, a, you know, early spearhead of this movement. Um, so ecofeminism, it's scholarship having to do with environmental themes in literature, ecocriticism, um, it's a theory and a movement that associates women and the environment. Uh, that describes the connections throughout history that have been established between women and nature from cultural, historical, psychological, spiritual, or political perspectives. Um, so ecofeminism also has this kind of environmental justice um, piece to it. Uh, that denounces the comparable degradation and subjection and exploitation of women and nature and other marginalized groups. Um, and so it addresses um, some of the violence exerted 
um, on, on women and under, under protected populations. And so that definition is um, from some work being done by Margarita Estevez Saw um, in her article, The Ethics and Aesthetics of Eco-Caring. And so in that, um, you know, I think the, the links between women and environment, like broadly, are numerous, you know, um, and all very much <laughs> intensified with the acceleration of climate change and, and all the <laughs> bad news we're getting on that front. Um, but yeah, links between women and environment are numerous. There's all these cliches about there, about nature, um, people, you know, still referring um, to, to nature as this kind of problematic feminized body as a mother figure. And, um, you know, that's, that's not always wrong. And of course, you know, um, poets and nature writers, um, you know, always add their own fresh take on it. Um, but I think some of those associations can veer into, um, you know, women having to clean up the mess of, of climate change and what the, you know, um, perhaps patriarchy, you know, to use that type of language, um, you know, messed up with capitalism. And so it's, it's important, especially in this moment in time, to think about these connections and be intentional about our language and, um, you know, kind of reanalyze, I think, some of these older books um, for what they have to say about what the, the writer was experience, experiencing in their environment at that time in history. Perfect. And, you know, again, she was, <clears throat> what, back in the 60s was, you know, writing these things before women did have their choice of, you know, when Roe versus Wade was finally you know, past and for, you know, you know, we had a long span of having choice and now that's been taken away from us. So, you know, again, kind of feel like a second class citizen. And I think it's great to address those aspects of what's going on politically. But also Artemis Journal is the perfect format because Artemis as the goddess was always the goddess of the hunt, but the protectress of young animals and young maidens. And, you know, the, she always had a bow and arrow often depicted on her images. And uh, she was a woman of strength and she did fight for justice. I mean, she, she was often uh, referred to as the goddess of light because she carried a torch. So that that's a great theme. And I think uh, for our next journal in 2023, we'll start working that theme and see if, you know, what kind of work we get in with that theme. So um, I want to just say, Skip just pulled up the Phone number, Skip. The phone number went... <laughs> you have to open up the screen. Uh, if if you are having issues, uh, you know, with depression, anxiety, or trauma, PTSD, uh, addiction, uh, there's a number. And I want to tell my viewers, if anybody's listening, if you need it, it's 866-330-1925. 
866-330-1925. Thank you, Skip, for pulling that up. Um, and we'll, we'll conclude this podcast. It's just been delightful, you know, speaking with you. And uh, if someone wants to read more about your work, and uh, I think you will have links we will post uh, on our website for people to go uh, see it. Did you want to say there was other way? you want to say any other ways to get to your work? That's great. Yeah, um, I'll provide some links. And then also, um, if anyone, you know, is having issue getting getting um, a hold of those articles, you know, my contact info is on on the website, as well, feel free to reach out to me. I clearly love nerding out about everything Plath related. And I'm so glad, Jerry, that you you re-listened to the Bell Jar on Audible here recently. And um, yeah, um, I think that's an excellent, excellent listen as well. Um, but just thank you so much for having me today. Yes, it's been great. And we look forward to seeing you in September. You're going to come up for our launch here at the Taubman Museum in Roanoke, Virginia, September 2nd. So until then, uh, we will uh, look for your work and we'll post that on our website. Artemis Speaks. Um, is a podcast which highlights the works of artists and writers, and we're grateful for the support of our donors, the Roanoke Arts Commission and the Taubman Museum of Art. And this podcast comes to you from Final Track Studios, co-produced by Skip Brown. I'm Jerry Rogers, and this is Artemis Speaks. You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization, now 43 years old, and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a woman's shelter in Southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly, P.O. Box 505, Floyd, Virginia, 24091. The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon. And the song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios in Roanoke, Virginia. All rights reserved and is co-produced by Jerry Rogers and skip round.
Just slow down. 